This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Dark Forest. And guess what? We're heading back to Ironwood. That's right. The saga continues for at least three more parts, if not more. We'll see what happens to Mike. Now let's get spooky. It was dark. The large room, lit only by the sharp blue light of the bug zapper over the back door. Heather threw a quick glance at the gas and electrical cutoffs on her way out. Off, as she had thought. Satisfied, she left the diner through the back door. After locking up, she reached into her bag to swap one set of keys for another. It was not without some apprehension that she quickly crossed the small yard at the back of the diner, where no light shone. The lamp over the back door was out. The night was deep and cloudy. The damp hanging in the air stirred only by the occasional lazy drop of rain. She could only make out the car a short distance away when she hit unlock with the key fob. The indicators flashed twice quickly, the yellow light illuminating the space between her and the car. There was only a wide expanse of gravel hemmed in by the dumpster and the odds and ends that you would find in the back of any diner, at one end and the tree line on the other. The gravel semi-embedded in the hard ground by years of delivery trucks, crunched quietly under her feet. She hit the unlock button again halfway across the yard for reassurance, finding the brief illumination comforting. The twin flare of yellow reacts the thick tree trunks, but emphasized the dark beyond. They stripped what little adjustment her eyes had made to the black, and she made the rest of the crossing, homing in on the lights underneath the wind mirroring of her car that cast a small pool of light on either side. Dim as they were, they put her at ease all the same. The little felt safe. It drove away thoughts of what might be lurking in the darkness. Ironwood had seen its share of disturbances over the past month, and Heather was all too aware. Sole proprietor of the only place to get a hot meal in a single street town, she overheard more than most would. Law enforcement of all types had based themselves out of the diner recently, using it as a hub of briefings and breaks. The alternative was the bar next door, but they had saved for the evening after the change of shifts. Heather had declined their offers of drinks whenever they asked, not having much interest in being the object of a lawman's desires but she still welcomed the business and played along with their little jokes and flirtations. 
while she etched out a nice enough living as it was with those passing in the summer. Every extra helped, especially in the quieter winter months. The more she had learned, unable to help overhearing the police officers. DNR and such, talking in the open plan layout at the diner, the less time she wanted to spend outdoors, until there was some type of resolution to the problem. Austin's violent death, deemed as an animal attack, had made it an easy decision. The nervousness the men, exclusively men that she had noticed had displayed when talking in hushed tones, were enough to unnerve even the noisiest of eavesdroppers, and she now actively tried not to listen in on them. She was confused. It was a lot of law enforcement for an animal attack, and that explanation didn't sit right with her. What they exactly were combing the Forstead hillsides for were anyone's guess. The Adirondack bear population was large, but near town they were rarely seen and flightly. Wolves were even more rare, and some of the other theories being thrown around by the guys in the bar were laughably outlandish. The general consensus, however, was that there was some kind of cover-up in action. Starting up the car, she pulled out onto the only corner of stretch of road Ironwood had built around and started towards home, in the same direction as the nearby state park. A short way up to the dark hillside, she felt a wave of sadness as she passed the home of her late friend, which now lay in darkness, marked only by the faint glow and a few small solar lights staked into the ground either side of the drive. Empty. Austin's family had been stained with his mother. She thought of all the times she had driven past and saw him playing in the garden with his children on weekends, the birthdays and occasions they celebrated in the diner over a lifetime, the loss of a childhood friend. Feeling her eyes beginning to tear up, she put her foot down a little heavier on the gas and pushed on further into the trees as she left town, the white fencing of her neighbors, a continuous white line as the speed blurred it into one. She was just passing the speed limit, about to turn into the next corner, when something darted across the road in the front of her, just inches away from her front bumper. She couldn't quite make out the dark shape, but presumed it to be some large deer as it leaped clear of the road, disappearing into the trees. Startled, she jumped on the brakes and before the pedal was even fully depressed, she cursed her reflexes. ABS hammering to keep control onto the damp road. The sharp change in speed carried the car straight into the corner, across the wrong side of the road where it planted its front tires into the verge, down a foot-deep dip off the road. The sills bit through the crumbling sides of the road and brought the car to a dead stop. Heather was lucky. The car had shed enough speed before going off the road to save her any real hurt, but her back took a jolt and her head whipped forward fast enough that she would be left stiff and sore for at least a couple of days. She sat staring into the black of the trees now only a single foot beyond the hill of the car, still clutching the steering wheel. Noticing movement over to her right shoulder back towards town, she turned her head too fast and cursed at the pain that shot out from the strained ligaments and tendons in her neck. The engine had cut off and she sat in near-complete darkness. The only noise. A metallic popping of water droplets running off the branches above as they splashed onto the roof of the car. The only light. The dim onset of the oncoming traffic headlights as they began to watch over her. 
The pines overhanging the road were slowly being lit up by the overbright blue-tinged headlights of an approaching truck. The light increased its intensity as the truck drew nearer to the corner. Cursing again, Heather threw open the door and turned her body awkwardly in one motion. Pain and shock slowed her down. Stiff and sore, she pushed through it and jumped out of the car, running awkwardly along the side of the road, the same side which the oncoming vehicle was bearing down on the corner. The same lane her stalled car was obstructing, hiding by the turn. The stark bright lights of the truck now lit the area around her and filtered deep into the woods behind her. If she had turned around, she might have noticed the huge shape as it darted back out of sight behind her, where the light and dark mixed to the point of imperceptibly. The huge shape clutching a dead deer in one clawed hand, and the other three limbs propelling in silence along the blacktop. She might have even seen the second pair of amber eyes peering from within the dense growth, watching her every move as the first set joined them to watch her too. The bright lights had saved her for now. Heather realized that she didn't have to worry for long. She was about to wave her hands to warn the approaching driver, but could tell she and her stalled car had already been spotted. The approaching truck had already traveled slower than any other truck that had turned in that corner all week. The driver was cautious, cradling a half-time thermos of coffee between his legs as he drove, hands at ten and two when he flashed the headlights to acknowledge Heather. Hidden in the trees, one pair of amber eyes moved silently deeper into the dark. The other remained where they were watching. Georgie? She snuffed out the window at him. Am I glad to see you? Are you alright? Are you hurt? What happened? Are you okay? Georgie reeled off in a worried tone of a concerned father, not giving her a chance to answer. She knew that he had a couple of daughters of his own. Still... She had to fight the urge to roll her eyes. He was concerned. She understood that. But it felt a little more patronizing than she would have liked. I'm alright, I th think. I'm walking and talking, aren't I? Heather answered, two hands raised with her palms out in a shushing motion. I'm fine. Relax, old man, she teased, surprising herself how calm she felt. The car is stuck, though. It's gone down the drop a bit. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. It looks worse than it was. What happened? Georgie asked again. It isn't safe to be out here at night like this. Seriously, get in the truck. She was a little taken aback at how wild the look on Georgie's face was as he looked not at her, but all around the road and trees about them. She was alarmed at the urgency he was questioning her with and started to feel uncomfortable when she noticed the rifle sticking up from the passenger footwell, and more so when she saw the pistol he was holding from somewhere below the window. Georgie? she asked, quickly backing away. Hands still raised now a little bit more defensively. What are you doing? It's not safe, he answered, 
still turning this way, and that he had climbed out of the big truck. He had the flashers on, and just how she used her own to illuminate the backyard of the diner just minutes before. He looked left and right, taking advantage of the yellow pulse ticking on and off. A half a second on, a full second off, a half a second on again. It created a brief halo of light with the truck at its center. It's not safe. Let's get you home. We can get the car in the morning, Georgie said. Just pull it a little more off the road and take your phones and keys. Quickly now. Heather calmed a little, as Georgie's voice was forceful, but with an edge of concern rather than aggression. Still eyeing the gun as Georgie held it down at his side, in a two-hand grip, she began to follow his instruction. She wasn't about to argue, especially not with an armed man who appeared to be on the edge of panic. In her state of mild shock, it didn't seem too unreasonable. They both approached her car, and Georgie appeared to be growing more nervous with every passing second. He was nearly turning on the spot at this point, and if he hadn't been holding a gun and acting so nervously, Heather would have found it comical. It isn't going to get out by itself, she said, climbing out. I think it might still be drivable. Can you get me a tow? Georgie looked at her like she was insane. She wondered if he had even blinked once since he had got out of the truck. He immediately turned about again, and she saw him draw a long breath, thinking. He turned one more full circle, squinting into the darkness beyond the intermittent circle of light where they were. Still looking unhappy, holstered his sidearm. Let's do it quickly, he answered and repeated. It's not safe. They worked fast. Heather was thinking about getting out of the damp and into a warm shower, the ache really starting to set in. She wouldn't be working anytime soon. Georgie, like any good country boy, had a selection of gear in his truck for a job like this, and he moved more urgently than he ever had since leaving the service decades before. He worked like he knew his time was running out. Before long, there was a strong bright orange tow rope connecting the car to the truck. It bore signs of being well used, but that was a reassuring thing. It was tried and tested, proven in its strength. Heather hopped in her car and turned the wheels, angling for the road, and with the gentle bump to dislodge her, he pulled her out in one smooth movement, the big truck not struggling in the slightest. Once the car was out onto the road and facing its original direction, Heather tried to start it up. The starter motor complied as the engine revved to life. The rev counter's needle shot up only to fall all the way back to rest at the bottom of the gauge again. As she looked at it, the engine had almost immediately cut out. The strong smell of gasoline was making its way inside. Growing increasingly conscious of the injury to her neck as the pain was beginning to radiate out more and more, she gingerly half-pulled and half-rolled out of the driver's seat and slowly got down on her knees to peer underneath the car. There was a pool of gasoline spreading out from underneath the engine. The fuel line had been damaged by the edge of the road, where the car had ground to a stop. Heather half-turned as she heard profanity from behind her. Get in the truck now! Georgie bellowed as he drew his gun again. He had opened the truck door and was now aiming through the open window. Heather started to race to her feet when, seeing the black shape approaching Georgie from behind, 
She froze in confusion. Georgie! Was all she managed pointing behind him. As again, the pain shot from the base of her skull when it joined the back of her neck, making her breath catch as she tried to say more. He turned and fired without looking, crying out as the orange muzzle flashed quickly followed by the yellow of the indicators of his still-running truck lit up the beast as he failed to hit it. Though his hands were shaking and his reactions slower than they once had been, training from decades ago were still embedded deep within his reflexes and he pulled the trigger repeatedly. Not stopping to see if the bullet had found its mark, he dumped the clip into the beast crashing against the side of his truck and went hurtling into the trees. Georgie! She heard Heather call out again. He spun, facing back to her, and with practiced ease, slipped a fresh clip into the sidearm. Adrenaline coursed through him, and he felt the years of wear and tear his body has accumulated subside. Surrounded by trees with lingering gun smoke hanging thick in the moisture-laden air, he was transported back to his soldiering days. Feeling recklessly calm and on high alert, he moved off towards Heather, circling around the truck aiming for the trees where the black dogman had once been. It was quiet. The lower branches swayed where they had once been brushed aside. It was too quiet. He was sure that if the attack was truly over, he would have heard something as the crazed canine tore through the undergrowth. Where did he... He began to ask Heather, not getting a chance to finish before his legs were swept from under him. Georgie and Heather cried in unison as Georgie hit the ground heavily, and all those years of wear and tear came crashing back down on him with added interest. He landed badly, falling too fast to protect himself. His head broke the fall, hitting the ground with sickening force. Hard enough that she felt the impact travel across the blacktop underneath her. She looked away, feeling the bile rising in her throat, fighting against the wave of nausea she felt. The cracking sound Georgie's head had made was bouncing around her own. Some emotionless, quiet thought in the back of her mind reckoned that it was an unsavorable injury for a man of his age. It was a quick and painless end, at least. Her immediate thoughts were confused, however, as she opened her eyes again and Georgie was still moving but hand was limp, outstretched, uselessly towards her and the gun that laid on the road between them. Looking past, Heather saw a brown wolf bare its teeth at her. She saw its muscled arm, claws buried deep into Georgie's left calf, pulling him away from her. His body slack, yielding no resistance as it dragged away. As she watched, she started to feel faint. The scene before her began to grow lighter and lighter. A black shape, every bit as hideously large and twice as sinister looking as the first, emerged from the deep pitch of night further along the road, almost glowing. She quickly realized it was the light of another approaching truck began to glow in the background, and then she surprised herself. Diving forward, she launches across the space between them to grab the gun where it laid on the wet, faded, and cracked white line in the middle of the road. She lifted it just high enough to miss Georgie and fired it repeatedly again until the freshly inserted clip was empty. Seventeen quick shots flashed, blinding her and the beast they shredded. Even though it was at close range, an encounter someone could have with the dogman and not yet be dead, only three of the nine-millimeter rounds found their mark pulverizing the dogman's eye. 
The entry point provided little resistance, with the first round paralyzing all movement as it found the spinal cord and lodged itself into the back of the dogman's skull. The next two took a glance off the eye socket on their way in, fracturing the bone and then each ricketing off almost identical near 45 degree angles. The pair followed their diverging paths of destruction, tumbling through soft brain tissue killing the beast outright. The other bullets flew above the now-dead dogman, finding their way into the front of Georgie's jeep mostly. Two went further, one flying past the second dogman's head, clipping its ear, tearing off the tip. The second stray bullet pierced the oncoming truck's windshield, dead center as it sped towards them. The black dogman ducked and yelped as its ear was clipped. It lurched forward a few more steps towards Heather who lay on her side still trying to fire the handgun until it screamed at her so loudly she had to turn away. She pressed one ear to her arm and blocked the other with the heel of her hand still holding the firearm. The scream shook her chest. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce. Use intelligent automation and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. As it rose in volume, trailing off into a high-pitched, pain-filled final, it was answered by the wailing horn blasted by the oncoming truck. Afraid to look, Heather laid there and waited for the end to come. She felt Georgie's arm under hers and grabbed his cold, wet hand and laid there quietly. Time froze and the drop shaken from the trees above her ran coolly down the back of her neck and made her shiver. The only sound that she could hear over the pumping of her own heart and her own raged breathing was the idling of the older truck pulled up alongside Georgie's truck. The latter's more refined idol was drowned out by the newcomer and she looked up squinting to see through the headlights that washed over her and Georgie's cold, still body. Heather wanted to cry out, to warn the newcomer of the threat that now vanished. Her throat refused to cooperate. She felt herself shaking and her teeth chattered. She was in shock, disconnected, cold. Somebody flung out the driver's door of the newly arrived truck on the other side of Georgie's to her, and raised a rifle in the direction of the trees moving cautiously until stopping where the body of the brown dogman was slain seconds before. Both dogmen were gone. Heather felt Georgie's cool, worn hand and wrapped both of her own around his wrist, feeling for a pulse. Georgie was gone too. Nearing the edge of Ironwood earlier in the afternoon, I had detoured to come around to Georgie's by a not-so-beaten track which was an old, disused road. Not for those who like the paint job on their truck the way it is. I was justifiably paranoid, as the last time I had been there, I had to burn, break, and bury my friend's body to hide my association to his death. I had enough to explain away without explaining how a creature that was more at home in horror movies than reality had dumped what was left of his corpse at my front door. It was another bright, frigid day, but where the beams of sun broke through the thick canopy above, you could see them cut down as they were raising steam in the air from the damp earth and moist outcrops of rock they touched down on. 
I wanted to survey the area, so I knew what I was coming back to. And about midway through, I was suspicious as to how heavily used it was for a supposedly disused road. Plenty of traffic from truck tires, and plenty of broken and battered greenery along the road's edge. Bigger vehicles than my old truck had been frequenting this neck of the woods as of late. The wet ground made it all too easy to see. It was more than likely due to the amount of law enforcement in the area, and the patrolling they had undertaken while keeping up the pretense that it was Austin's remains they were in search of. I always wondered if the officers and other types were actually told what they were looking for, or if they were true law enforcement at all. If that many of them knew of the existence of Dogman, and other cryptid type that were out here, it would be common knowledge at this point. A secret is only as good as the weakest link, and there was plenty of those in the ranks of authorities worldwide. Believers were ridiculed for their thoughts and conspiracy theories, but as someone who was in the thicket of it, I understood such thoughts weren't all that outlandish. My grandfather had been employed by the park services as a search and rescue team leader and a specialist in animal control, but he reported to a less well-known department. He had grown distrustful over the years, and a large part of that was distilled in me. I had no affiliation. Freelancing was the closest description of my services. There were numbers with people I had never met on the other end that I could ring for assistance to get out of stickier situations like legal trouble or such, but as of yet, I haven't resorted to associating with the more shadowy parts of the world. I had seen the tight leash that had been kept of my grandfather, and I wanted no part of it. I was a privateer of the underworld that lurked in the quieter parts of the world. I doubled down on the suspicious streak when crusting a small rise that fell sharply again into a deeper waterlogged section. I saw that there were tracks newly embedded in the heavy mud with something with dual rear wheels. It couldn't have been here long before, no more than a day or two. I didn't even have to get out of the truck to tell that much. Very unusual for such an out-of-the-way area. A very rough route for anything not suitable for off-roading. Definitely not law enforcement. Pickup trucks were the preferred transportation in these parts, but I haven't seen a DRW since my arrival in Ironwood. The axle width was far too small to be a logging rig either. Further along, after a few more twists and turns, was a blanket you'd miss it path worn right into the low brush to the left. This was getting interesting. Georgie's was now to my right, near enough as the crow flies, but a half hour or so on foot in the hollows and hills of the mountainside. The main road from Ironwood that led out into the National Park was about the same distance in the other direction. I crept the truck forward, now conscious that it was due for full service and running slightly louder than ideal. I made a mental note to give her some TLC as soon as I could manage. The truck had been with me longer than any woman in my adult years of my life, and I loved her dearly. I kept the revs down and the gears low, letting the engine idle pull itself along. Finding a flatter bank, I turned full clock to the right, and then backed the truck gently over the crumpling edge of the path into the undergrowth. Just enough to be out of sight. I didn't want to be long, and would tackle the issue of someone spotting the truck if it happened. I tossed a loose leafy branch across the hood and chuckled. It wouldn't stop anyone seeing it. It was a comical attempt. 
To get in, out, and indoors before dark was the plan. I took my 45-70 anyways. I learned that daylight wasn't any kind of deterrence to the local inhabitants. I stopped and thought about it for a second, before grabbing the keys out of the ignition as well as locking the truck. Better not to take too many risks all at once. I crossed the path, picking my way across the less wet parts and hopped on the edge of the other side of the fresh-worn path. It was easier to spot on foot. A trail of bent and broken brush, partly severed greenery left hanging by the last strands of fibers here and there. Fronds and ferns and other light brush were flattened by a repeated footfall. It was as if someone was picking their way through over and over for a few days. A carefully worn path, made by someone who didn't want to leave too much of a mark. Give it a week for what wasn't crushed flat to straighten up again, and there would only be a small trace of anybody frequenting the area. More curious were the strap and pulley system tied around two young oaks that were set back a little way from the road at the top of a small cliff. It looked to be set up like they would rub on or cut into the bark too much. As I got a closer look, I saw that they were for getting up and down the incline, and I was now atop of it, a good 50-something foot drop. What was going on here, I couldn't guess. I was beginning to wonder if I should have been more vigilant up to this point, but intrigued, I decided to go a little further before drawing any more conclusions. It could be a campsite or something else innocent. I kept on, picking my way further in from the track and stopped when I heard a pair of male voices conversing below. I hunkered down to stay out of sight, trying to make sense of what I was hearing. They weren't speaking English. I couldn't pinpoint what language exactly, only that it was thick, coarsely spoken and direct in the manner that they were using it in. The talking was mostly one-sided. One was reporting and the other appeared to be doing some record-keeping. The monotoning of the tone of the voice doing most of the talking gave it away. It had that bored tone. I circled around until I had a better view of the entire setup below me, with the opposite rise about three to four hundred yards across from me. It was a perfect bowl shape clear from debris, growth, and obstruction except for the three giant pines rising from the irregular positions within it to patch what would have otherwise been a break in the canopy above, a well-hidden spot by any measure, cut off from the common travel routes, surrounded by dense growth, encouraging anybody who stumbled by to go about rather than through the general area. Still crouching, I eased my way to thicker cover and settled in to see what was going on below. The wagons were circled in a sense. An unmarked brown box truck was parked there, with the cab facing away from me. I could see the dual rear wheels caked in mud. It was amazing that they managed to get it down there. It seemed to have come through the clearing from the other side. It was steep and rough enough that I wouldn't try getting my own truck down there unless there was no other option. There were four other trucks with it, all together making a ring about 60 feet in diameter around the largest of the pines. Two were the same model Toyota that I had left behind me, but the pickup version, not like my extra cab. They were far newer and far less beaten up than my own two. The two larger trucks were harder to judge, as they looked more militaristic than anything. Akin to defenders, but heavily armored, they would look more at home on any army base on Earth. The way they were grouped and vo- This episode is made possible by PWC. It's getting hot out here. 
Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Strong Wild West vibes of sheltering the inner circle. There was a scattering of equipment stored under tarps, strung out from the pine giant to the taller military-type trucks. I hunkered down between the grouping of hickory trees to watch and see what was going on. The camp was in disarray and had seen bloodshed. There were bodies and they weren't intact. In the middle of the circle, the first of the dead I spotted was laying on their head resting against the tree. At least the top half was. Entrails stretched out from the waist, and I couldn't see the lower half from where I lay. Around the clearing, there were parts that had once been people, and looking over the vehicles, they hadn't been short of ammunition. The thick brush around the hillside was as dense as you could find anywhere in the state of New York. Witch hobble and younger shagbrush clustered around the spaces underneath the older hickory trees I was under. The aromatic green smell of smaller herbs and upturned roots blended with the freshly trampled earth's damp warm scent to mask my own better than anything I could have bought or made, and the low bushes gave me cover from nearly every angle. Laying over my front, I raised the compact 1025 sporting binoculars I kept in my pack and watched the hollow below me. There was more conversation floating up from below. The 10 by 25 was ideal as it covered a large enough area and didn't focus too much on any particular level, but in the quickly dimming light, they were fast becoming less and less useful. I thought about I was going to have to move to get a better angle to keep up with the watch, until the owners of the two voices I had heard earlier came into view. The two looked to be working their way through the site, reporting on their findings. I decided they were speaking a blend of Russian and some other language, but I still couldn't put my finger on it. As I spied on them documenting the site, the scale of the massacre became clear. After I had settled under the hickory tree and pulled out the 10x25s to watch, the droning sound started to sound more upset sounding, and the pair looked visibly curious at the hand they had pulled from underneath the box truck. Severed at the wrist was too clean a description. Ripped by force, the radius bone was degloved and still attached. The two seemed to be debating whom it belonged to, as they bagged it and added it to the cooler that was in the center of the ring of vehicles. The hair on the back of my neck rose. The two seemed to be know what was going on and seemed too casual about it. It was clear from the motions and gestures they made while debating how a hand could be torn off so brutally. I watched as they spent the better part of two hours meticulously picking their way over the campsite collecting scraps of flesh for the cooler, and stirring earth into pools of blood to most likely hide it. They were destroying what evidence they couldn't collect. It was disturbing to watch how they went through the process with such little emotion on display, broken only by excited bursts of conversation and gestures speculating as to what happened. Seemingly finished, they loaded their gear, the cooler, and all assortment of weapons they had picked up onto one military-looking vehicle and unhooked the tarp connecting to it. 
speaking into a radio as they sat in the big truck. I was alarmed when two more men appeared at the lower points of the bowl-shaped hollow at the northern and southern rims. It was time for me to leave. I was becoming complacent at this point, and like I could see in the two men below, the night was coming in fast, and I too was getting edgy. They did one last sweep of the site as a group, and with each getting into one of the 4x4 trucks, took off out of the hollows at a speed that suggested there was a company paying for the maintenance of the vehicles. The single vehicle remaining. The brown box truck was now alone in the clearing, and was blending in with the fast-falling gloom or with every passing minute. I half got up to crouch down on one knee and listen. The trucks were out of earshot. They had followed the track I had been on earlier out the other direction and into the National Park. I turned to go to my own truck before the darkness was total and seen the anchor points at the top of the cliff. Curiosity got the better of me once more. Now at the edge I saw the setup was overkill. The inner of the hollow rose steadily to the end I stood above. The cliff face itself was closer to 20 feet down to where I met the steep but easily walkable slope that ran the rest of the way down to where the abandoned truck was parked. I looked up at the canopy, way above me and saw there was still a good amount of daylight left. It was artificially darker here underneath, and with the last glance around the hollow, I swung over the edge of the cliff onto the rope that had been left behind and backed walked myself down. There was an excess of rope at the bottom, so I unraveled it and let it trail out behind me on the steep slope to make the way back easier. It felt darker down in the hollow. I felt pinned in and I was alone without a perimeter guard as the now departed team had. It was quieter down here too, sheltered from what little breeze was above. Every footstep I took was amplified by the natural shape of the hollow. Reaching the box truck, I circled it and saw that the cab was out of sight of my earlier position, had been partially caved in. The driver's side had been all torn up, and what was left of the windshield was blood spattered. It wasn't hard to imagine one of the two dogmen that I've seen wrecking that truck and pulling the driver out. The glass was all over the ground in front of it. It happened here in the hollow. The blood was fresh enough too. Not much insect life yet other than a few small flies. This had happened no earlier than this morning by my reckoning, circling the wagons indeed. I stepped up to the passenger window to look in, hoping for some kind of paperwork or something to unravel the mystery of whom exactly I had stumbled across, and almost regretted it. The cloth bench was covered in a soup of broken auto glass, shredded blooding and blood. Whoever had died here didn't die pretty, and there wasn't much left. I turned, not trying the door as I could see the glove box was open and already emptied out. I walked around the truck, admiring and at the same time annoyed by the thoroughness of the departed team. I signed, thinking how easily I had acclimated to the gory reality of these twisted canids' existence and how little it affected me. This would surely catch up to me in a few years in some way or another. The truck had been stripped clean, nothing of note worth taking or making note of. The team hadn't cut any corners. They hadn't taken the truck, though, so I completed the circle around to the back again. 
the rear doors were unlocked. The latch was thrown over to keep the doors shut rather than to keep anyone out. Or keep anything locked in, I chuckled, and then I winced at my own joke. I was only making myself more nervous thinking like that, as I hesitated and cautiously unlatched the door. I swung one side slowly open, ready to jump behind it, but there wasn't any immediate cause for concern. The cage built into the back was empty. Frowning, I threw the other door out wide to let in a little more light and assess the modification before me. Heavy-duty steel bars had been bolted down to the floor of the truck in a rectangle about two feet shorter in every dimension other than the back of the truck. More steel had been welded onto the bars, creating a cage within the back of a truck big enough to house a grizzly or a dogman. There was some kind of soundproofing foam lining the interior of the truck. And from what I could smell, no evidence that the truck had recently, nor at any point in time, housed an animal, wild or not. Whatever mission this team had been on had failed catastrophically, and I had witnessed the backup team removing the evidence. They clearly knew what they were dealing with, and I reckoned it'd be time to get on out of Dodge before they returned to remove any more evidence myself included. I thought about leaving the doors and just getting out fast, but decided shutting them was the better plan. Leaving no trace of my visit was more important than having a quick getaway. They would surely be back for this truck. I closed the first door quickly and quietly, and I swung the second one in. I jumped when I saw movement at the top of the hollow as it was hidden from view. For a split second I thought I was busted, or worse until I noticed my observer had four legs. A medium size. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Nice dough, blankly staring at me. Closing the door made no noise, but the latch was stiff and little used. So it took a few blows from the heel of my hand to get it closed fully. The soft echo of my efforts through the hollow was enough to spook the deer and she took off, somewhere towards the main road out of Ironwood, her silhouette against the now twilight sky gone in one quick leap. The hollow was now almost fully dark, as I crossed the large pines going back to the rock face. I switched on my flashlight, and did a few sweeps across the area, hoping to hit upon some forgotten gear or missed piece of information. No such luck. No glint of metal, no stark white paper against the gray of the ground. I gathered the rope up as I went and left it as close as how I found it before climbing back up. It wasn't perfect but it was a detail that would be overlooked. I hoped. I was glad to have my own truck so close. It was pitch black by the time I reached it, and luck was on my side that the unidentified team had exited in the other direction. I brushed a few fallen leaves off her when a thought struck me. What if the two sentries that had covered the rim of the hollow either side of me had been patrolled and had came across my hastily hidden truck? 
If I had thought I was going to end up on some stakeout, I would have hidden it better, but at first glance, it appeared untouched. Uneasy, I circled the truck in the nearby area, checking and double-checking for any sign that someone, and I couldn't help thinking, something had been in the area. Luck seemed to still be on my side. Relieved, I had found no tracks that weren't my own. I got in, gunned the engine to life, and with a great deal more care than the other trucks had taken, took off back down the way I came, to join the main road just outside of Ironwood. For the last few hundred yards, I took a risk leaving the lights of my truck on, but from the last turn down, I drove in darkness. I didn't switch the lights back on until I had turned back on the route to Georgie's, just in case if there was any prying eyes about. As my front two wheels had touched the blacktop, my phone, which was still on silent on the passenger's seat, lit up to show that I had signal again, straight after a bunch of messages and missed calls binged in, all from Georgie. I slowed the truck down a bit, and I glanced over the messages. They appeared urgent, even though they weren't long-winded. Georgie, a product of his age, texts like he was writing a letter. A general message that he was heading back home, and needed to meet with me ASAP. The last said if he hadn't heard from me by nightfall, he was phoning me on the missing list too. I put my foot down on the gas again and rang Georgie as I drove into the hills. The weather was turning, and fat drops of rain bursted onto the windshield, but not a steady downpour yet. The road here was faster, but still twisted and turned a bit, so I threw the phone back on the seat besides me and nudged the truck to 70, more than I should for the conditions. I flicked on the headlights on the straight, and by the time I reached the corner, I was backing down from 90 miles per hour. I eased on the brakes, and not too soon enough. Rounding the corner, I saw three things at once as I turned in, the scene playing across my windshield from left to right. Georgie's flashy truck was there, lighting up the night with its hazards going, its full beams on, giving a stark white light to everything the warmer, almost yellow of my own headlights would have thrown into shadow. There was a car I didn't recognize connected to the truck with a tow rope. The owner was presumably the person scrambling towards whomever the brown dogman was in process of mauling. The black one was there too, with his back to me, and I tried to seize the opportunity. I had my feet on the brake together as the truck slid to a stop, and at the same time, I reached back for my gun not a second too soon as the gunfire popped off. Aiming in my direction and I ducked over in the passenger side just as a bullet pierced my windshield and buried itself into my headrest. I counted off what must have been a full clip emptied in a few seconds. In an uneven pattern like a panicky finger was pulling the trigger. As I leaned over, I found enough space to rack the lever on the Henry. The handgun fired a second ago would make a dogman back off for sure. But the bigger 45-70 would put holes in it, especially with the modification rounds that I had loaded into it. I jumped out and away to the side of the road, just in case there was any more rounds incoming. The dogmen were nowhere in sight, just rustling trees and the crashing of timber further as they left. The couple on the road were immobile, and presumably beyond help at this point. A wave of indecision hit me, and I brushed it aside thinking back as to what my grandfather had said to me the last time at the lake. 
I needed to cross that line now. I needed to be the hunter and not pay any mind to the human inside that may be worried about the two on the ground. There was time for that later. Hopefully. It was impossible to see more than nine or ten feet ahead of me. It was impossible to hear anything but the heart pounding in my head and the flat drops of rain hitting the leaves around me. I pulled off the cap of the one flare I had grabbed and held it along the forestock at the ready as I had done that day on the hill a few weeks prior. I wasn't going to wait to use this flare as a distraction this time though. My flashlight was back in my bag in the truck and I could barely see the end of the short barrel of the rifle inside the thicket. I continued forward as fast as I dared. I focused more on my peripherals than straight ahead. Focusing on the dark only helped to see just how black it was. The peripherals covered more ground, and the ear worked harder that way too, trying to compensate for the lack of definition. I started to think, if I was a dogman, this is exactly what I would want me to do. This is their domain, their home turf. I felt less like a predator and more like their prey now. Something shifted on the ground and pulled at my leg, and I almost struck the flare and pulled the trigger of the gun at the same time. Easy, I cautioned myself. I would have been on the ground if it was a dogman. I would have hurt him. Keeping my hand on the swivel, I slowly reached down and shook off the thorny branch, then kept going. Another mistake like that and I would be a sitting duck. I don't know if I was being watched or following a cold trail. The dogman could have been right behind me, and I wouldn't realize if I lost it like that again. They could have circled back around to claim the other two back on the road. They could have split up. They could have laid down and I would have walked right over them because I wasn't concentrating on the task at hand. I was getting lost in theories and what-ifs instead of paying attention. I stopped. Everything was still and calm all about. The occasional drop of a leaf was the only sound. Too quiet. Striking the flare, I raised it in front of me with my left hand and ducked to the side and half-turned with the rifle pointed the opposite way, fully expecting to be face-to-face -face with the black dogman at point-blank range. There was nothing but dawning realization that I had forgotten to look up. Then it all came crashing down. Dropping from above, the brown dogman came first, teeth bared directly down on top of me. I twisted and felt it tear at my shoulder. I fired off around and crunched the second of five rounds into the chamber. The first had been a direct hit and blown a chunk of flesh off the creature's neck. I felt its blood spray onto my face, hot and coppery. It was all I could smell, all I could taste. I could feel my own blood rushing throughout my body. Exhilarated, I pointed the rifle at the female's head to make sure that it was down when I saw the mess its face was already in. It wasn't moving. Not withering in agony. Not snarling in anger. It had already been dead when it fell. It had already been dead when it had dropped from the top of me purposefully. I felt my eyes go wide in horror as it dawned on me. I had been tricked. My apprehension too late. I heard the branches crash above me and knew I had been outsmarted. Outplayed and out of luck this time. All I could do was invert the rifle and fire directly upward. The blast was too close to my own head. The hot, coppery smell of blood was now even hotter. 
I was blinded by the muzzle flash and deafening by the big round blasting out of the barrel. Too close to do my hearing any good. I fell to the ground and tried to lever in another round. I didn't expect to manage it, but somewhere between the black dogman knocking me down and hitting me to the ground, I found time before he flattened out on top of me. Pinned, I could only see teeth. Its claws sank into my shoulders as the dogman screamed, and I fought the primal reaction trying to shut my eyes. It shook me and slammed me back into the ground again and again. The breath went from my lungs and a mass of black hands swung at my head from the right. I saw stars. I couldn't catch my breath. The weight of my chest was too much. The wet putrid breath washed over me and my head swam. There wasn't any escape and there wasn't anybody coming to get me. This was the end and all I could see were teeth. Jagged, stained, and dripping with foaming saliva. The burning red light of the flare painted them like the pink bloody mess they would be when they were finished with me. The black dog man's snarl was reverberating through me. The world shook again as I was slammed into the ground harder than any blow so far. My ears were ringing and the world started to slip away. I had well and truly crossed the line and found an eerie calm. I had found my mind going to a sentence I had read somewhere in some old soldier's autobiography, explaining that there was no point fearing death. Your number was either on that bullet or it wasn't. You might as well charge that machine gun and worry about it later. This was my bullet. My number was up, and there was no longer any point in being afraid. The rifle still in my hands, I could move as the dogman pulled its head back one more last snarl and came back down at an angle right by my throat. I hoped that the barrel of the rifle was aiming in the right direction. I felt like it should be. It also felt like it should have been crushing beyond all recognition by the height of the nightmare on top of me with the muzzle pointed right at my own head. I pulled the trigger, hoping to spare myself a gruesome end. I felt fire. That made sense. The muzzle blast escapes the barrel first. It made sense to feel fire before you shoot yourself in the head. It burned. Screw me, it burned. I felt teeth at my throat, too, and blood. I felt strips of hot, wet flesh bursting open. I felt myself thrashing about. It was uncomfortable. I felt like I couldn't move, but I was. Left and right. A heavy weight on top of me, and then gone. Then a heavy weight again. I found I could blink, but I couldn't see. I could breathe. I was alive. The flare lights colored the world red against a black backdrop, and the dogman was thrashing about in the middle of it. Dazed, I tried to sit up, but I couldn't manage it. My shoulders burned hotter than the muzzle blast had felt. I was spiraling. I couldn't focus. I needed to vomit and swallow, and I wasn't sure in which order, but I was definitely still alive. The black dogman rolled across the small space away from me, clawing at its own throat. It was doing more damage to itself, clawing as if trying to dig out some blockage. I let out a solitary chuckle escape. I had tried to end my own life to spare myself the gruesome death the dogman would have given me, and it looked like the dogman had got in the way. Ragged strips of flesh were coming away in its claws each time it dug at its own throat. Most of its jaw was gone too, and I saw its tongue flick around before that too got torn away in its panic. 
It was making a high-pitched half-gurgle, half-scream as it drowned in its own blood. Somehow, after all that, I was still clutching the rifle, and I crunched in another round. The dogman still had that look towards the nozzle, wide-eyed, and tried to snarl. It never got a chance. I was already on my knees, rifle raised and pulling the trigger. I put one through its left eye, and the monster straightened out in an almost comical way, like when a cartoon character gets hit on the head and goes stiff as a plank. The dogman didn't stop moving, though. It looked to be having a seizure, its brain now scrambled, red blood bubbling from the ruined mouth and throat. Its exhale was rattling and gurgling as I crunched another round into the chamber. It all stopped. I waited another single heartbeat before putting one more round in through the same eye socket, and this time I saw it come out the back of its head. There was no surviving two shots like that. I cycled the lever on the rifle and heard the last round. Five of five, crunching into the chamber and then there was silence. One left just in case. It was the most silent moment I had experienced in my whole life. I dropped the rifle off to my side and heard it land between the wet sound of the blood-soaked leaves and twisted roots of the forest floor. I felt the rain, heavy now. I didn't know when it had started. I stayed there a long time, my face upturned to the sky, feeling the cold, heavy rain run down my face, feeling it build up in my hair and soon the trickling down my neck and inside my shirt. I felt a lot of pain on either side of my throat and realized just how close I had come to dying. There were deep lacerations from the dogman's teeth. There were going to be some fearsome-looking scars. I was soaked through. The heavy black flannel shirt soaked in the rain and the water together, and it continued down through my busted-up jeans. The downpour washed away the disbelief, and the surreal nature of the whole thing was fading. It was done. They were dead. I laid back on the wet ground, and felt the tension release across the whole of my body at once. I laughed, trying to express my relief. I stretched out, spread eagled on the floor, and my hand hit against the clammy stick chest of the black dogman, and the sensation of the coarse black hairs and smooth wet skin brought me right back down to reality in an instant. I recoiled in disgust, and repeatedly wiped my hands on my pants. Even dead, the black dogman looked angry, and I backed away from it. Slowly, I got up. The flare was still going, though it didn't seem as overpoweringly bright or steady now. I picked up my rifle, and the first step I took, I nearly fell. My shin must have taken a beating at some point. I saw my pant leg tore open, and didn't want to see any more right now. Testing it again. It burnt like hell, but seemingly strong enough. I adjusted my pace and stepped over to the body of the brown dogman. Its eye had been blown out, and it was clearly by a smaller caliber not the mess of my forty-five round would have made. Georgie must have got it, I thought. Georgie? Shit. Pain forgotten. I raced through the trees, ignoring the branches and thorns whipping and tearing at my already battered and slashed body. I kept running and I must have covered far more ground on the way in than I had imagined. I bursted onto the road and tripped on the blacktop, catching myself by sticking my right hand 
still holding the rifle and wincing as I felt my knuckles grated along the road's surface. I was about 50 yards closer to town than when we had entered the woods and ran back to where the trucks were still running. Lights on and George's super bright hazards were still ticking away. The rain pounded down and Georgie was still where he laid when I had run in first. Mike! I heard as I slowed to a walk. It was the woman from the diner. She was bent over Georgie, keeping pressure on his leg with a tourniquet wrapped higher up. It won't stop bleeding, she shouted at me. Help! I stood there frozen. I knew it had to have been Georgie on the ground. It made sense. I hadn't seen him. He had been the one the brown dogman was mauling when I arrived, as I ducked from the hall of bullets that were flown in my direction. I had come back across the line again. I felt it all, the coldness of the fear on my arms and legs, the knot weighing me down in my stomach, the lump in my throat caught in my breath and made it ragged. I felt it all. Mike! Damn it! I heard her shout again. Help me! I rushed over. Georgie was white. He was cold. He was still breathing, though. It was shallow. I felt for his pulse. It was hard to find, but it was there, just barely. Ambulance, I said. I called. The phone died. I think I gave enough details, though, she answered. I took over and quickly assessed the wound. The rain makes it look worse than it is. The blood flow has almost stopped. It's just mixing with the rain now, I explained. You did it right. It's his belt I used, she said quietly. We knelt there, both watching Georgie's shallow breath. My own steamed out in front of me. I was still reeling from what had happened in the trees. It would be a while before I could settle down. I noticed Heather's breathing, shallow and way too fast. Are you alright? I asked her. She didn't appear hurt. Fine. She shook her head. Just sore from going over the road in the car. Georgie stopped to help me. He was scared. He knew they were here. He knew. I looked at her, quietly crying, angry with herself, I assumed. She felt guilty. Shit. I felt Georgie seizing and cradling his head gently. Saw the blood pooled underneath. I held him as the seizure racked his body. I looked up into the rain, letting it cool the heat on my face. Hey there, Heather said. The ambulance came into view. I hadn't noticed the lights. Erratic, electric blue. No siren on the quiet country roads. The paramedics were out of the ambulance before the driver had fully stopped. Young, fit, ready. He was in good hands. I let go of Georgie and let them take over. Heather put her hand on my shoulder, and there probably wasn't much behind it, but the touch was welcome. The burning from the wound the black dogman's claw had inflicted brought me around to clarify. The little human gesture, a hand on the shoulder, did more for me right then than anything could have. A paramedic was asking me if I was okay. I nodded. I let her clean me up a little while while they worked on Georgie, and once she confirmed Georgie was stable, I lost all interest in anything else she asked. The chief had just pulled up and was talking to the other paramedics as they loaded Georgie into the back of the ambulance. I declined the offer to go with them to the hospital to get checked out further. Heather was wrapped in the ambulance blanket and shivering, dismissing her own paramedic who wanted to insist on her going to the hospital more than mine had been. The chief was asking me questions now too, and I was too tired for it all. 
I looked from one to the other and then back at my truck. Meet me at Georgie's, I said to the chief, and pulling Heather away from the paramedic, loading her into my truck. I need a cup of coffee.